But as an engineering leader, understanding the big picture, especially if you're in an early stage company, right? And, and how the company makes money, how revenue is generated, where the growth opportunities are, and, and keeping that frame of reference in mind as you're making prioritization decisions for your team, I think is really important. Have you ever wondered how your dev team ranks in terms of productivity, speed, and business impact? With Linear B's new engineering benchmarks report, you can find out. The product of comprehensively analyzing the work of almost 2,000 dev teams at close to 1 million branches, the 2022 Engineering Benchmarks Report is the first ever look at what performance metrics make engineering orgs elite, average, or underperforming. Best of all, if you want your dev team's number to go from average to elite on any of the benchmarks, the report also provides concrete guidance on the behaviors, tools, and processes you need to get there. To explore the report in full, Visit linearb.io slash benchmarks or click the link in the show notes of this episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Dev Interrupted. I'm your co-host, Connor Bronson. And today I'm joined by Chris B., the CTO at Lesson. Chris, welcome to the show. And thanks for being a Linear B customer. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. I'm really excited to dig deeply into your engineering team and the work you're doing. We often hear about disruptors in tech, and many companies say that's what they aspire to be. Lesson is actually earned that title. It's shaking up the $400 billion real estate industry. And we'll get into the specifics of what your engineers are doing to disrupt that industry and all the great work you're doing there. But before we dive in, I want to kick off the conversation with something you said to us before the show started. You said there's a growing opportunity to solve less and less obvious problems, not just incremental improvements. What did you mean by that? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I think if you look broadly at the SaaS landscape, you know, a lot of the more obvious problems have been solved over the last, you know, couple of decades that we've, you know, been building software at scale. And I think what what you're starting to see is that there's still lots of niche opportunities. There's going to be plenty of successful SaaS companies in the future, no doubt. But the the sort of low hanging fruit or or easier rocks to overturn have mostly been overturned, I think. And then there's this growing crop of no-code, low-code tools that allow you to build applications pretty quickly and easily. And then there's, of course, kind of the the generic kind of one-size-fits-all platforms like the Salesforce's and right. the of the world where you can sort of stand something up. So I think there's, a, you know, a little bit less opportunity in those areas, broadly speaking, a lot more opportunity in some of the harder businesses and some of the more kind of traditional areas that uh, have a software element, but also have a really big operational element. I think industries like professional services, healthcare, and of course, real estate, mortgages, transportation, there's, you know, these really big industries that still have massive, massive problems that can be aided by software. And I think a lot of the, the, the breakout companies we'll see in the coming years and coming decades are going to be a little bit more of the real world augmentation with software versus just pure software. Like I said, there's still going to be plenty of SaaS companies that are going to be successful, but I think there's a real growing opportunity in, in some of those spaces. Yeah. Like. We hear about this as digital transformation, right? Of, yeah. hey, let's take these industries that maybe have real world problems that aren't as software savvy yet and, and take it to the next level. How do you think about those processes and, and steps? Like what, let's say you're an entrepreneur, you know, engineering leader who's listening to the podcast. What would your message then be about? Like, here's how we should approach these, these problems. Yeah, I think the, the, the mental model that a lot of people need to have is really purely around solving customer problems, right? And and understanding the user very deeply and understanding that there are embedded ways of working that arguably are successful, right? I mean, our industry and property services, right? There's 
there's construction work and property service work being done every day. And it has been done that way for, you know, uh, hundreds of years, thousands of years since people, you know, had places to live. So, uh, you know, understanding that and really appreciating and building that empathy for the customer and for the user, I think is where it starts. And, you know, I think the, the, the tendency and the thing to kind of be careful of is to go too deep down the path of, of just purely software focus and purely how can technology solve this problem and, and more just how do I solve this problem and then use technology as a tool to get there. What I'm kind of hearing is there's a lot of obsession about efficiency and that can be great for like, as you point out, these incremental improvements, those that's important, but to solve these bigger problems where we're taking on a new industry or, or trying to transform something that hasn't been as approached as technologically as software focused as, as previously, you need to really focus in on something that we talk a lot about with engineering leaders, which is the customer pain points and kind of connecting what you're building to actually how they want to use the product. And I feel like a lot of orgs struggle with making that connection of, okay, let's make sure the engineers actually understand we're trying to solve for customers versus having engineers solving what they think customers want. Right. How are you making that connection for your team? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a couple of things we're doing. One of which is we like to send our product and design and engineering folks out in the field on a ride along and they actually go and spend time in the field with our users that are actually using our software that are living the problem space day in, day out. And what we found is there's a lot of really great information gleaned from those sessions and from those visits where we get insights that uh, sometimes are very acute, very specific. Like we just need this one little feature, this one little drop down or button over here that's, that, that's necessary. And there's other times there's really broad observations that help us lead into what our roadmap ends up being for quarters ahead. So that, that's a really big thing we're doing. We also orchestrate these round tables with all of our users because our, our teams are distributed across the country, not just the engineering team, but the operations team are out in the real world doing work right. in all the markets. So we have these round tables on a monthly basis where we get a lot of feedback and get really good insights from the first party users that are, that are on our platform and living and breathing the, the operations side of it every day. So I think that's really key is to build that empathy, understand the problem space and you know, be able to discern between what's a, a quick fix, something that we can just sort of get in the next sprint and, and push out for somebody and get a quick win. And what is no, we need to take a step back and really think about this problem space holistically and, and plan, you know, multi-month or multi-quarter for some much larger changes needed to fix a given problem. So those are some of the things we're doing that made it successful. I want to dig into these ride-alongs because this is a really fascinating thing that I think a lot of engineering orgs don't think deeply about. How do your engineers respond to this? Do they enjoy these ride-alongs? Do they think it's weird at first when they start doing them? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, all the feedback I've, I've heard and, and have witnessed and even been a part of, I've gone out and, and shadowed some of the folks as well when they go out to do these, has been very positive because I think it really helps connect the dots between, you know, an engineer who's, who's writing code and neck deep in, you know, whatever specific application they're building or bug they're trying to solve or, you know, a piece of software they're trying to build. And who we're actually solving the problem for and who we're building for. And, you know, in essence, that's the shortest path to getting something fixed or, or having a, a solution take hold is when the person actually writing the code is very aware of what the, the user's problems are that they're solving for, right? Because that cuts out some of the back and forth of PM or back and forth of an operations group or back and forth of design, what have you, when there's sometimes it's nuanced. It's just a small thing, but them having that little bit extra context will shortcut a lot of the cycle time typically required to make a change or to make an update. So we find them really valuable. And, and you know, I've, I've heard nothing but good things and 
it's usually kind of fun. They get to go visit another market or another city and, and spend a little time out in the field and see what folks are actually up to who are uh, using their software every day. It sounds like these ride-alongs have helped your entire organization increase problem solving. And are there other big takeaways you're getting from this? Well, I would say it, it gives us insight into, in some ways, the other tools and the other approaches that already exist. So like I was saying earlier, this work's been getting done since, the, you know, the beginning of housing existing for humans. And much like other industries, you know, there's established ways of working and there's established processes and operational pros. And I think what we are, are learning is that there are certain areas where the embedded approach isn't necessarily bad. And then it's a question of, okay, well, how do we augment what's happening so that it scales in a much more meaningful way, right? So one person who could normally handle, say, you know, 15 projects a month can handle 50 projects a month or 100 projects a month and, and still have the visibility and control that they need and require and, and allow for the human judgment and, and human perspective to come into that process. And I think as technologists, we often tend to lean towards just fully automated, you know, AI driven solutions, which are cool to think about. And, you know, I love brainstorming, working on those kinds of problems. And we're doing some of that too, to be clear. But there are other areas that, you know, it's really a matter of augmenting the human behavior in a way that they, they get superpowers from using the technology. Um, but it's still very much a, a human centric process. So I think we learned a lot of that from some of the field visits and some of our user research and some of the roundtables I was, I was discussing. And, you know, it's just once you start to learn the industry in a little more detail too, you can kind of build some intuition around where there'll be sort of resistance and sort of embedded ways that are actually good and where it's like, no, people will absolutely love this enhancement and, and, you know, let's go full technology approach where it's appropriate. It sounds like you think that these ride-alongs and roundtables are practices that shouldn't just be specific to the space you're in, but something that most engineering leaders should consider as they're approaching different companies in various industries. Yeah, I would absolutely agree. I mean, building empathy for the user and having a good feedback mechanism from your customer is invaluable, no matter, pretty much no matter what product you're working on. Even if you're building products for other developers, right? Then your customers are just other developers and you know, the conversation may be a little different. Their understanding of what you're building and how it can help might be a little different, but absolutely invaluable. I think no matter what type of company you're working for, I think it's just especially important when you're talking about folks who are performing some real world operational task. Right, because they're not just necessarily at a desk, you know, using a piece of software already or using a spreadsheet already, and you're sort of creating a better version of that. Like, okay, that's that's legitimate. But when you're talking about augmenting the way someone does their job and does, you know, their their day to day, I think there's a, a little bit more care that needs to be provided there. But to your point, I think it's it's relative to all types of companies. I, I would almost say that people who are building software for other software companies almost are already having this experience, but aren't thinking of it that way, where, you know, a dev may go in and be part of a call with a customer and walk through their product with them and see how they're using it. And it's a lot easier because, we, you know, we have this synchronous connection worldwide, whereas you almost have it a little harder where you have to take this hands-on approach in person. And so it it seems like it's this bigger deal where, hey, we're, we're going in person, we're doing this. But really, you're almost taking the strategy that some folks are already applying in digital space and saying, wait, wait, this needs to happen in interpersonal space as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And then, you know, like like all user research, you really want to observe what, what more about what people do versus what they say, you know, because we often will hear great feedback. Everything's great. This is working amazingly. We're like, hey, we're done. You know, this is great. Yeah. And you got a feeling they're like, wait a minute, this isn't working. Are they using this? Yeah, yeah like it's, people aren't using this. So 
that's a really, really just key thing to keep in mind, no matter what type of user research you're doing. But again, I think it's especially important when you're dealing with real world operations and people doing a day to day, you know, kind of hands on job. And I mentioned it earlier, but I really think the work you're doing at Lesson is actually disrupting a real world market. You're making a big impact. I kind of want to ask, how did you, from an engineer's perspective, think about that initial market disruption of, hey, we're going to approach this. And what do you have to do differently at Lesson than, say, working at like a massive org like Microsoft? Yeah, I mean, sure. A, a big place like that, it's, um, uh, you know, just completely different in the sense that the difference between a startup and an early stage com- or a later stage company, mo- much more mature company like that is, is pretty massive, right? I think, How big is uh, your team now? Uh, so we're up to about 150 in, in all the tech with product engineering design. Uh, some of those are contractors, but that's, that's the rough side. The entire org is about 700. So... You know, there, there's obvious differences, like just in an early stage company, you need to be a little more scrappy. You need to be ready to kind of take on anything, learn new areas quickly and be comfortable with that, jumping into new things that maybe you haven't done before. But I think more than anything, you've really got to focus on delivering tangible results, right? You, you don't have infinite time. You know, there's some optimizations and, and sort of maybe scalability concerns that you have to kind of be comfortable with saying, okay, we're going to get to that, but just not today. We're going to focus on the, the high order bit and the most important piece. And I think as a, as a disruptor of this space, like, or any space, you, you've really got to focus on adding clear value, right? There's, there's really like no time to waste with low impact work. So I think it's a combination of knowing where you're headed and what it is that you're trying to achieve and then providing the right tools, mechanisms, and approaches to, to make sure everybody's incentivized to get there. And, you know, we use a lot of traditional things like OKRs and roadmaps and, you know, the standard kind of agile process with two week sprints and demos that we demo to the whole company, which are, also, I think really effective because it's an opportunity for first of all, our engineers to get in front of the whole group and they're really well attended. Like almost our entire operations team shows up every week for those, which is really cool to see. And uh, that creates a little bit of that accountability and just sort of, you know, delivery results aspect of our culture that I think has been really powerful. How did you figure out that this was the market to target in the first place that you could be a disruptor here? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, there's there's a couple of facets to it. So there's a, a sort of efficiency component that is well received on sort of the, the service delivery side, both from our clients and from our vendors or our service professionals out in the field. And, you know, if anybody's ever had the experience of hiring a general contractor, dealing with, you know, somebody doing repairs of their house, you know, you, you've probably witnessed and, and seen how inefficient it is and how bad the communication is. And, and a few times. Sure. Right. I mean, it's, it's one of these problems that everybody's seen and it's, it's almost when you start digging in, like, why hasn't somebody solved this yet? And the truth is it's because it's a difficult problem to solve. And, and I think the way lesson is approaching it with having real operators, real operations, people out in the field and technology being part of the same organization is just allowing us to do things that no other company can do. Um, because they're either full general contractors that are maybe using a tech platform, but basically just an operations general contractor. Or they're a technology platform that's trying to get other people to use their software, but but they're, it's not first party. They're not part of the same organization, the same mission and same approach. And we're finding that combining operations with the technology is where the magic is happening, where we're getting these unlocks and a lot of efficiency being. To your point about the ride-alongs, right, where you're you're actually bringing the digital side of it, the the, the tech side, the software side into the operations and right. melding those together. Right, right. And, and so much of it comes down to the, to the data that we have and the ability to measure things in a way that haven't been measured before and analyze the specifics as it relates to a given project much more acutely than you'd be able to otherwise with sort of anecdotal text message, email, 
you know, he said, she said sort of aggregation of information. We have actual data from our project management system that tells us specifically the, the path of a project, how long different facets of it took, where there were delays, why there were delays. We have all kinds of reason codes and lots of detail around the actual execution of the operations, which is supremely valuable. And then our operators, our operations team gets that and has insights and data that they never had before when they were doing similar style work for a less technology enabled company. So, so that's a lot of it. It's, it's sort of the gathering telemetry from the field and some of that's just, you know, manually current operations, changing statuses correctly. And then of course, there's more advanced things around geolocation and, um, you know, around timing and, and a lot of things we're doing with dispatch and accept the climb and all the, the marketplace side of it is the whole other big problem space that we're working in. And, um, I can tell you more about that in a minute. But yeah. I want to dig into that data telemetry advantage and how you built that up. I think that'd be really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. By, by all means, I can definitely talk through that a little bit. So there's a lot we're doing there. You know, our basic platform is, of course, the ability to to complete these operations much more efficiently, clean the data required from that, and just have everything centrally tracked, which just in and of itself is is supremely valuable. And we've dubbed that uh, the property services operating system. So it's bringing together the the, the vendor side, the client side, our internal operations, and then supply, right? Because there's materials that go into this world as well. And the the data that we're able to to leverage from just understanding the the work that is happening allows us to do much more interesting things. So the the three main areas we have are our our marketplace platform, our vendor matching platform, and then categorization or some of the scopes and some of the work that's being done. So I can dive into each of these if it'd be interesting and talk talk through a little bit of the detail. Great. I'd, I'd love to hear. Great. So on the marketplace side, you know, at the end, we're, we're matching supply and demand, right? I mean, that is, that is essentially what our platform does, right? So there's demand coming from all matter of clients, both large and small, up to big institutional investors, down to small mom and pop investors and individual homeowners eventually that uh, have service work needs to be done, whether it's a renovation, a turn or maintenance job. And what we're finding is that the, especially on the renovation side, which is where the majority of our work is, it's complicated. These jobs are not just straightforward, show up, fix one thing and be done. You know, they're a month long sometimes and require all manner of different contractors come in and do different work at different times. There's a sequencing to it. There's a dependency consideration and all that plays into the timeline and the eventual cost back to the customer. So because they're, they're relatively complicated, we've created this standardized job model that is uh, built through unsupervised learning that allows us to create clusters of similar jobs by market. And then from that, we're able to map the demand that we have from customers, both known and forecasted through this standardized job model, which then leads to the trade by trade breakdown by market, by time period that then we can use to understand our capacity. And based on the vendors we have on our network, we can say we have enough, we don't have enough. We need to go get people in certain places. So you're predicting demand based on the data you have about what people are doing and what they've done in the past. Y- yes, yes. It's it's leveraging all the data in our system that, yes, is all the historical data. And that then maps to not just predicting demand, but predicting the supply needs is really what it's doing. So uh, we know okay. how much supply we, we need, how many you know vendors, service professionals we need to be able to complete certain parts of the jobs. So and that's a huge challenge with disrupted supply chains, I'm sure, To And so having that advantage of planning ahead, I'm guessing, has like positive impacts throughout everything your team's doing. Yeah, yeah, of course, because it allows us to confidently take on new work and be committed to certain dates and certain timelines with our customers that have expectations. And being able to, to do that gives us this ability to not only uh, provide a great service to our customers, but our vendors then are 
much more utilized and they're able to take a lot more work off our platform much more consistently. And, and this becomes for a lot of our, of our service professionals, the, the primary way that they are living is off of our platform, which is really empowering. Like really, yeah, it's really, it's really great to be a part of this, right? So they're, they're, um, able to do work without a lot of sort of the overhead that's typically associated with, with doing this kind of work. And that is, you know, the, the sales and marketing, the customer relationship management, you know, so the paperwork, the billing, a lot of the pieces that they kind of don't get paid for that they don't really love doing. We're basically abstracting all that away and just offering the, the specific work, specific work order details that they can go execute and get paid on through our app, through our application. So it's very fast and easy, not the traditional sort of standard invoicing, wait 30 days uh, process that they're used to. So it's been really awesome to see our, our vendor base grow. And we've got a whole marketplace operations team that's fantastic with going out and reaching these folks, you know, describing the value proposition and getting our network built up and stronger and stronger over the, over the months here. So yeah, the, that whole matching between the two sides is, is really kind of the heart of the marketplace problem. And then eventually we get to a point where we can add a dynamic pricing layer and almost like surge pricing the demand side. So it depends on the timing and, and how in demand a given trade is or how in demand a given, you know, market may be for, for a given skill set will start to determine what we can pay on the other side. And then there's an incentive structure on the vendor side to get paid more and that sort of thing. So we're not there yet, but these are some of the things we're starting to think about and, and build into our capabilities. And, and as you build that data advantage, that telemetric tree advantage over competitors in the space, because you're growing, you're ingesting all this data, you can just start to create models for all these interesting pieces of, of potential business. And also, I'm sure it provides like a much stronger vendor experience for everyone you're working with. That's right. That's right. And allow them to earn more than ever and, and you know, have a really successful business that they're growing on top of the lesson platform. So how did you start this modeling? What, what was kind of the first steps you took along this pathway? Yeah, I mean, well, first, you know, hiring a data science team was <laughs> the very first step. Uh, totally. And like, like any, you know, kind of data problem, big data problem, there's a lot of cleanliness of data that needs to be considered and a lot of normalization and a lot of sort of prepping the data for some of these processes we're going to run, removing outliers, standardizing things as much as we can to actually run some of these models. And like I said, there's an unsupervised learning process we put together to cluster some of the different standardized job types so that we had a good representation of what the, the types of jobs actually were by market. And then using that to apply against the capacity understanding that we have, which is a combination of real capacity, that is folks that are actually on the platform with work orders that are assigned with dates that start now a little more heuristic based. But then there's a huge prediction aspect to it where we need to understand what their total capacity potentially could be based on how many concurrent work orders they could take. Then this comes down to like crew size and company size. And then of course, when we get new people on the, on the platform, there's a bit of prediction that's needed to understand, well, what do we think they could handle and take? And it depends on the type of trade. It depends on, of course, their type of work and the city they're in and this sort of thing. And then we compare that against a lot of the other similar types of vendors that we have on the system that allows us to predict what their capacity is. So bringing that all together allows us to bring this model to fruition that creates this managed marketplace, which, you know, not too dissimilar from the other large managed marketplaces that are out there in the world, Ubers of the world, this sort of thing. From when we've talked previously, it seems like one of the things that has really enabled you to continue this innovation and build this marketplace out has been your approach to how you treat devs as knowledge workers. And you have your own unique system you've come up with, correct? Yeah, there's uh, there's an approach I've been working on over the years that uh, has gone through some some fine tuning and, you know, revision over time. Yes. Do you want to break it down for us? Sure. Yeah. Happy to happy to talk through it a little bit. So 
for our larger roadmap projects, and this is not just at Lesson, but in my previous companies as well. I and mean, I've got a couple of talks on this out there, and there's some articles on Medium and stuff I've written. But there's essentially four key phases to any. Then again, these are larger projects. This isn't a, a bug fix or a small feature request. This is you know, launching a whole new experience or, or you know modifying some major part of the application. Um, and the four are discover, design, develop, and deploy. So on the discover side, of course, this is going out, identifying the opportunity, doing the user research, doing some level of feature discovery, working with stakeholders to sort of get everybody's input into the situation or into the problem we're trying to solve. This is mostly led by product and design with engineering there in part of the process, but this is a little bit more product and design heavy typically. And then once we sort of feel like we have the problem well understood and we know roughly sort of what it is that we need to do to solve it, um, it moves into the design phase. Design phase is, of course, UX design, if it's a UX feature, which not everything is, but if it is, there's a big UX element there. And then uh, technical design, right? So this is where engineers get a chance to take a step back, think about the bigger picture and make sure it integrates with current ecosystem, you know, what approaches we're going to use, how services are going to be constructed, what needs to t work together to, to build a given experience, this sort of thing. And that and exits, each one of these phases has an exit strategy that we, we declare like this needs to be done before we move to the next phase. The first, I should have mentioned the first phase in discover is typically a PRD is, is where that usually uh, manifests. And then in the design, you have like certain sign offs basically to proceed to the next. So like indicators of success in phase one. That's right. That's right. That's right. And you know, we, there's a little bit of subjectivity applied there. We try not to be too hard with the gates because you end up delaying things. So, you know, there's a little bit of judgment call that needs to be made, but broadly speaking, yes, there's certain exit criteria we have for a PRD to say like, this is big, this is ready. Let's, let's move it to the next phase. Based on how you're describing team orientation, it seems like you can have like product and design can be doing the discovery phase of one iteration of features. Engineering can be down in the develop and deploy phase on another set of features at the same time and can kind of swap as things go along. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's multiple of these running concurrently at any given point, you know, the dozen or more, at least even in my board, the larger the company, yes, larger or more of these are running at the same time. But yeah, the PRD is the first phase and then design, you know, ends up with, of course, UX design, but also technical design. And also this is where we come up with costs and we come up with what our, what our actual expectations are for delivery. And, you know, we don't expect hour level detail, but week level granularity. So we have at least broad enough strokes to say, you know, these are the, whatever they may be, four or five pieces that need to come together in order to ship this feature. So it might be, there's a backend service needs to be built. There's you know, some new messaging needs to be built for Kafka. There's front end piece that needs to be reconsidered, reconstructed, what have you. Oh, we're going to clean up this little bit of tech debt while we're doing it. So here's the, you know, four or five phases that we have for this project. And each of those come with some respective timeline, always from the ground up, always from bottoms up. I, I, you know, really, really hesitate to commit to any dates that don't come from the engineers. I guess that's the people doing the work, should be the people telling us how long it's going to take. So that, that then plays into our, our roadmap. And then this becomes the set of commitments that we outwardly communicate to the rest of the org and to the rest of the leadership team and say, Hey, here's, here's the committed set of dates that we have for this given project. So that's all the design phase and then moves into develop. And, you know, there's a little bit of gray between some of these sometimes where they exactly start and end, uh, but once that, that plan is well put together. We move into the develop phase, and this is where we run more of just a traditional two-week agile sprints, you know, burning down tickets, getting stuff done, doing retrospectives, doing our, our weekly releases, everything related to, to getting the work actually done, typically behind a feature flag that we can continuously deploy to the prod, but then turn on when it's ready. 
and I, you know, usually is the bulk of the time and the bulk of the, the engineering work as we would normally think about it. Um, and once that the, the criteria for that phase being complete is, uh, you know, working product that is basically ready to go live. That's been QA'd and been, you know, tested well enough that we feel like it's, it's ready to go. And then there's a deliver phase at the end, which needs to be considered, especially in, in, in the world we're in where, you know, there's usually some level of change management that needs to happen. There's some level of adoption and kind of rollout. There might be a marketing plan that goes along with this. Right. There might be some sales cloud needs to be updated. There's a whole variety of activities to actually get it adopted and get it live, right? It's not enough to just say, we finished the software and, you know, we're done. There's often a lot of time. I mean, sometimes in that deliver phase, there'll be some iteration, there'll be some feedback, there'll be, you know, sort of other tweaks that we need to make. Usually we're already talking about a V2 or fast follows at that point. And then if it's the same project, it'll just sort of start in the middle of the process. Or if we determine there's enough new there, we might, we might create a whole nother project depending on what that is. But but that delivery Which phase, phase tends to take the longest? Is it the deliver phase or is it kind of vary? Probably develop, right? Because that's where we're actually writing the software, right? And and we also have a, a, a fast lean version of this whole approach that really is for smaller features or, or ad hoc requests where we, we kind of fly through these steps in, in, you know, a much, much more rapid pace where the discovery might be a meeting where we're taking some requirements in. Design might be creating the Jira ticket and, and specifying what, what it is that needs to be done with, you know, maybe a quick UX mock. Develop is, okay, put it in the next sprint, get it done. And then deploy is push it to prod and let people know it's live. And that whole process might take two weeks, right, for something small or a week, you know, one sprint sort of thing. So, you know, we use the, the larger process for bigger projects that require a lot more thoughtfulness, require a lot more time. And then the, there's still a, the fast lane for anything that's already live that needs enhancements or has requests coming into it. What prompted you to come up with this phased approach to how you're building product features and working with your engineering team? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it just has come from the, the, the years or decades, I guess, of experience here where you, you start to realize that you, you do need to have some structure around how you approach problems and how you build software, right? Your software development life cycle. And surprisingly, you know, there really isn't a sort of golden process out there that is the standard. There's, you know, everybody talks about agile and scrum and this sort of thing. And like, yeah, sure. It's, I don't know, 22 years old now or something like that, right? The agile manifested in 2001, I believe. So, you know, and, and coming from a time of waterfall and, and more boxed software with hard release dates and this sort of thing into more of a, of a, of a web world made a lot of sense at the time, but that, that is still like the predominant framework that people refer to, which there are merits to it and there are pieces to it that make a lot of sense. And we leverage some of that in like that develop phase, but it doesn't account for how you do user research. How do you do a lot of your discovery? How do you make sure you're working on the right things? How do you right. halt stuff and commit to a roadmap? Because, you know, like it or not, you know, most business stakeholders and operational partners sort of thing, at the end of the day, the main question you want to know is when's it going to be done? Like, that's just the question as a leader, you kind of have to be able to answer whether you like it or not. You, the, the answer of, oh, we're running this agile process and it's on our backlog and it'll come up in the next couple of sprints. Like that doesn't fly a lot of times when you've got specific deliverables you're committing to to customers or you've got a marketing plan you need to, to stand behind or you've got expectations from users on when something's going to be available. They might be deprecating another tool to use what we're building. So, you know, we have to be able to produce dates that we can stand behind. So from some of that pressure, you start to create the right steps needed to get to a point where you can we can confidently commit in, in timelines and roadmap. And tooling wise, to create that planning accuracy, 
to align with the rest of the business. Is that where you're leveraging Linear B the most? Uh, we use it more from an overall efficiency standpoint is what we use Linear B for. So a lot of what I was just describing is, is you know, typically Jira, spreadsheets, and, and you know, it's kind of traditional tools like that. There's a couple of mapping tools we're starting to explore. But Linear B comes in in our just overall developer efficiency, our cycle times, our ability to restore when we have outages and have issues. And just the overall kind of operational velocity is what we really kind of think about Linear B as our tool to 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 understand better. Uh, and it's been really helpful in that regard. And it's been really a, it's great to work a lot of us. So I, I really appreciate your thought process around this, which is, okay, we have the Agile framework. We can apply it in some places, but we need to go beyond and really address your own business needs. I, I think this is 100% the right approach. You know, not there's no single development methodology that works for every business. You need to adapt it to what the needs of your stakeholders, what's the needs, what are the needs of your vendors that you're working with? What's the unique part of your team? And it sounds like you've really identified your like why of, of what you're trying to get done, how to approach it. You've avoided being dogmatic. You kind of like forgot about the rules and said, okay, let's recreate this. Uh, let's figure out the process that works for my business, my team, our style, and have brought the data to then reimagine and build a process that's very phased and works for the way you want to develop. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a great summary. Yeah. Well, I, I, this is where I, I sneak in the fact that our, our VP, former VP of engineering, COO and co-founder Dan Lyons wrote an article about creating your own development methodology. And I think he would be geeking out talking to you about this because <laughs> he's a big fan of this. Like, you know, all these methodologies are made up anyways. They're not going to all work for you. Like find the one that's worked right for you and adapt it, create your own if you need to. And you've created a great one here. It sounds like. I appreciate, appreciate you saying that. Yeah. I, I've had a chance to refine a little bit over the years and I've done some form of this in my last three companies and have done a bunch of talks with internal and externally on it. And I found a lot of success with it. And I think a lot of times as, as it relates to process, you know, sometimes it can be six to one, half a dozen, the other. And it's a really a matter of Let's commit to something. Let's try it and be ready to make changes as needed and as we go. But not having anything established, I think, is where you run into trouble and a lot of chaos and, and people, you know, kind of confused about what they should be working on, what priorities are. And I feel like you're downplaying it. But for, for those listening, Chris was a software development manager at Amazon for several years. You're a senior engineering manager at Uber, senior director of product development and engineering at Zillow. I like these are not tiny companies you're working at. These are massive companies where you are building your own process before you came to lesson. That is accurate. And we've had a, had a chance to, to deploy this within groups and in larger organizations. When I was at Uber, we gave any of this talk to like the entire Uber Eats org and they started to deploy a lot of their processes and approaches. And of course, we're using inside Uber for business where I work. So yeah, I've had a chance to kind of refine it and tweak it over the years and, and have it adopted in a bunch of places. Appreciate the kind words there, but yeah. Well, been fun. I'll plug you even more and say that your website, chrisb.com, that's B-E-E, uh, great spot to check out more of Chris's podcast writing. There's a ton more on this. If you're interested to dive deeper into this four-phase approach or uh, Chris's thoughts around engineering, highly recommend it. A lot of fascinating stuff to read there. I would love to kind of ask a couple specific questions about different phases to, to dive in a bit more. Maybe the develop phase in particular, you know, obviously our audience is engineering leaders. A lot of them care about the product side, care about the discovery, care about deploy, but develops where, you know, we have to really get things done. What's the approach like that you want to instill in an engineer or maybe a team lead when they are approaching this phase? Yeah. I mean, I think this is typically where things are a little bit more defined and we've got, you know, expectations that have been set. 
And, you know, I think there is, there is some merit to just the sort of somewhat traditional approach of, of project management, right? Of, of committing to dates and milestones and having a good development plan, especially when it's a multifaceted, you know, multi-month feature set of features you're trying to build and, and sticking to it and committing to it and making that, making that really the, the, the thing that folks are held accountable to. You know, again, things happen, priorities change or people leave the team. You know, there's all kinds of reasons where, you know, you don't, you don't meet your commitments. But having that as sort of a general framework that you're working within, I think, really helps. Uh, and getting good at that skill set, I think, is a, is a big thing I try and instill in my engineering teams is, you know, we all as an engineer should be a decent estimator. You should you should kind of get good at coming up with good estimates and being able to pad things appropriately, you know, not overly pad, but come up with enough space where you feel comfortable that you can, you can deliver on something and still have some room for unforeseen issues or bugs or, you know, weird deployment challenges that come up, you know, in software development. But I think, you know, managing towards that schedule helps really keep the communication between the engineering teams and the rest of the organization, whether that's, you know, product and design or the greater organization being, you know, operations, marketing, leadership, et cetera really intact, right? It really, it really helps with that because that's the framework and the way that they'll componentize a lot of uh, the work that engineering is doing. And speaking of design, I'm curious that right along a section that you mentioned earlier about bringing engineers out of the field, having them talk to customers and vendors, is that something that happens in the design phase? Is it happening throughout? How do you envision that within this framework? Yeah, within the framework, it would it would typically be in the discover phase, like as early as possible. Okay. Sometimes we'll just send somebody out on more of a kind of general purpose mission to to see kind of how things are working and get a, get a sense of what some of the challenges may be. But for a, a given project or given set of functionality that we're trying to build, discover is really where we we try and do that. And we just did it actually very recently. We're building a new experience for our field project managers. And that engineering team and it was down in Arizona for our last all hands. And they did, they coordinated going out on the field, a team of like eight or 10 engineers and walked or walked a property and did the QC inspection and, you know, saw how the scopes are created and saw how they're using all the tools. And that was, it was really helpful for them to go back and then start working on the software with this understanding in mind. Fantastic. Chris, this has been a really cool conversation. I've, I've really enjoyed digging into the different aspects of what you're doing at Lesson and how you're leading your team and, and some of the uh, processes that you've invented to make things work better. One of the things we do like to do at the end of the episode is give our guests an opportunity to close out the podcast with a call to action. What do you want the engineering leaders, the developers and team members listening to take away from this conversation? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, there's lots of things I, I could mention. I think the, the big thing is really, we we're talking about a lot, but just the, the customer empathy and understanding the problems that you're trying to solve, especially as you get into to engineering leadership roles or kind of mid-level engineering leadership roles, it's easy to lose sight of that, right? You're really bogged down in the details of your architecture and the precision of your monitoring and team management, dynamic time, but by the way, which all of which are very important, but being able to take a step back, look at the big picture, make sure you're prioritizing the right things, you know, because you can make a, uh, you know, very well-reasoned argument many times for something that's purely a technical project or purely an infrastructure project that a lot of your business stakeholders are going to say, okay, shrug, I guess we have to do this and we're going to use half our engineering team to do it. Uh, but as an engineering leader, understanding the big picture, especially if you're an early stage company, right? And, and how the company makes money, how revenue is generated, where the growth opportunities are, and, and keeping that frame of reference in mind as you're making prioritization decisions for your team, I think is really important, which is, again, going back to the ride along to why we do that, you know, why we get folks out here to see, like, here's who we're building software for, kind of everything else is secondary. And, you know, of course, there's a balance there. You want to you build robust infrastructure that's, that's going to last. But um, in the same breath, you got to make sure you're solving the right problem. So that's, 
that's probably the biggest thing I would say, you know, getting your team acclimated to a high paced environment, getting your team acclimated to a a world where there's a lot of opportunity, I think is interesting when you're an early stage company, kind of the, the directions you can go are kind of boundless. And as a leader, helping focus the team down on what the most important problems are, what the most important areas to focus on is, I think, one of the key things. Fantastic. That's a great note to end on. Chris, really appreciate you coming on. And for folks listening, definitely make sure you check out Chris's website, chrisb.com. Great spot to learn more about his framework and how he's applying these lessons at lesson. Oh God, I shouldn't have even said that fun. That was bad. <laughs> uh, and for those listening, a, a quick reminder, I know we say this every week, but if you haven't already rated and reviewed the show on your podcasting app of choice, particularly Apple Podcasts, please do so. It'll make my life easier. I can stop bugging you every week. And uh, reviews are a really crucial way that the show gets discovered. You're also welcome to join us all week long for the Dev Interrupted community discussions, where we have inspirational questions from leaders like Chris and others. We're stoked to have you all listening, and we'll have links to everything we've talked about, including Chris's website, in the description below. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. 